0: Redeemer Kingsville Sermon Series, taken from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Kingsville, Maryland. Well, you recall from last week that we had been talking about Jesus' encounter with the Samaritans, particularly with the Samaritan woman. How Jesus, after traveling, from Jerusalem to Samaria, had this encounter with a woman who was shunned and scorned by her community. And in the midst of the day and its heat, having plopped himself down out of exhaustion, the Lord provided His Son Jesus an opportunity to meet this woman who was scorned by her community, steeped and entrenched in sin, and to reveal to her her very need not just for acceptance in her community, and certainly not the ability to have a water that would not run dry so that she wouldn't have to make both that difficult and that shaming journey in the midst of the day, day after day. But instead, he had revealed to her that if she was to have eternal life, if she was to worship in spirit and in truth, then she would have to become a new creation, She would have to put her faith in Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, as John revealed in that passage, the Savior of the world, who had come as God's Lamb to take away sins by putting them upon Himself. And it's only then that she would have a river of life bubbling up from her heart, internal, that could not be quenched, that would never run dry, and instead would satisfy, it would save her forever, as she looked to Christ alone for faith, who would then provide the truth by which she could have right relationship with God and all of creation through Him. And it was this message that she had shared in that community. She had run back to town. She had took great risk to go to a community that had abandoned her, that wanted nothing to do with her, and instead, in the midst of her proclamations, that one was unique, perhaps even that new prophet, that new Messiah, that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, perhaps he was in their very midst, and that community had come, and when they had come, they had fallen at Jesus' feet, and no longer believing the testimony of the woman, instead, hearing the words of Jesus himself, they believed in him. And you can see the contrast there. He had just been rejected by those in Jerusalem. He had been unwilling to commit himself to them on account of the fact that they were coming to him to see signs and wonders, not seeing that he was the true Messiah, but instead thinking that he was some wonder or miracle worker and nothing more. And So Jesus had been reticent to commit himself to his own people in Jerusalem. And hearing that their religious leaders at the time were seeking to divide his own ministry with John the Baptist, he had gone to Samaria where he had been accepted full-scale, without reservation, and many believed in him. And it's with these two contrasts in mind, both his rejection by the religious leaders in Jerusalem and his acceptance in Samaria, that we reach his travels to Galilee. Now there's a hint of anticipation here. If we've just seen two models, on the one hand, Nicodemus and those in Jerusalem who don't fully understand who Jesus is is, and will not accept him as anything more than a miracle worker. And the Samaritans, who go to Jesus, not having God's full revelation in front of them, not being the traditional heirs of his covenant promises, they go to him without reservation, in faith, and receive salvation. We ask ourselves, what will his acceptance be like in Galilee? How will his own native peoples, how will they receive him? And I'll tell you that verse 44 is not very (laughs) encouraging. Because John tells this, Jesus himself had affirmed, he testified that a prophet does not have honor in his own hometown. Therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done while in Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to it. Now, I don't think I have to tell you that much ink and special dedication of scholarship has been given to these verses, verses 44 and 45. And as much as I would like to wax on about the different possibilities and interpretations of these verses, I fear that if I did so, You would take this opportunity to go and take a bathroom break, or to grab a coffee, or whatnot, and it would be lost on us anyways. We don't have the time to go through them. But what I will say is that context here indicates that rather than a full acceptance of Jesus, not strictly as wonder worker, as regular prophet, Rather than receiving him as Messiah, these Galileans see him only in the same way that their brethren to the south in Jerusalem see him. You see, they too had been at the festival, at the Passover, where Jesus had performed many signs. His ministry in Judea had incorporated a number of signs, a number of wonders, But you will recall once again from chapter 2 that those signs and those wonders and people being overjoyed and rejoicing because of them or interested in seeing what Jesus was doing did not necessarily reveal a true faith. It did not reveal Jesus being accepted on his own terms as the true Messiah. It didn't understand the whole function and purpose of signs which was not to amaze, or to wonder, or even to bring healing and relief from pain and sorrow. But instead, it was so that they might believe that Jesus Christ was who He said He was. He was who John had testified about Him. He was who the Old Testament Scriptures had said He would be, the Messiah, that suffering servant, who would come and bear the sins of many, for their salvation, despite the fact that he had no sin. You see, when we get to verses 44 and 45, what we see here is that the honor that is not given Jesus is honor as Messiah. These Galileans welcome him, but it falls so short of the true honor that is due Jesus, the Word, the Logos, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, this one who is God incarnate, that it actually does him dishonor. So when we see the entrance of the royal official in verses 46 and following, we see that he exemplifies, at the beginning at least, this very disposition. So Jesus comes again to Cana and Galilee. This is a place, of course, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official in Capernaum whose son was ill. This royal official was probably attached to the house of Herod. It's unlikely that he was a Gentile. It's unlikely that he was associated with the Roman court in any way. But more probably, he was associated and he was a part of the office, some official capacity, of Herod Antipas. And at this time, we also learn that his son is ill it would have been common for those who had ailing relatives to seek out healing of some sort. As a matter of fact, we have testimony in the Greco-Roman world, from Philostratus, from Tacitus, of people traveling from across the Greco-Roman Empire, seeking temples or certain venerated individuals to receive healing. Tacitus writing Roman histories, would tell about the emperor Vespasian decades later from this account here, how people would come to him and they would seek healing of various ailments. And Vespasian would seek the will of his counselors or those people who were uh, practiced in divination and ask how he should proceed. And Tacitus actually records some miracles that happened in the midst of Vespasian, the Roman emperor, who is God himself, somehow healing people from their various ailments, whether that's blindness, or some crippling ailment, or whatnot. So it is natural that this official, hearing that Jesus, who as news is spreading, who can work miracles and wonders, who can affect healing, he would seek out this man. Perhaps he had already done so at various locations, at various temples, amongst various individuals. Perhaps he recalled... His own testimony, if he was Jewish, his own testimony in scripture about prophets like Elijah or Elisha who were able to offer healing for those who were sick. Elijah himself is recorded in God's holy word to have healed a young man from death, of course, the widow's son. So upon hearing that Jesus has come from Judea to Galilee, in Cana, in fact, 15 or so miles uphill from his location in Capernaum, He sets out, and notice when he comes to Jesus, notice what he does. He starts begging Jesus to come down and to heal his son. Some translations might say he was requesting or he's asking, but the original Greek gives much more force here. Jesus is being begged, this man is beseeching Jesus to come with him to take this 15 mile journey downhill on the shores of the Galilee where Capernaum is located and to heal his son. He is desperate. Like I said, we don't know the context behind it, who he sought out up until this point, or if this was a recent development in the life of his family and his son. But this man is desperate. And so he is seeking Jesus. So Jesus said to him, Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will most certainly not believe. This seems a bit out of character <laughs> with what we might expect from Jesus. But it's completely consistent with everything that has been built up in John's Gospel up until now. Jesus has been working wonders, mainly in his ministry in Judea, but of course once in Cana. And John has reported to us that both amongst his disciples, and they're not full certainty about who Jesus is, but more importantly for the context of this passage... The crowds that have gathered around him are not doing so that they might receive the Lamb of God, that they might not receive Jesus as Messiah, but instead so that he might work wonders in their midst. They are not receiving him as their Lord and Savior, and so their faith at best is shallow. It is based upon signs, it's not based upon the testimony that Jesus is giving, the testimony about who he is. This will continue in his ministry. We'll see that after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and reveals to himself that he is the bread of life. And what he can offer goes beyond just physical nourishment from bread. Still the people follow him, not because of desire to sit at the feet of their God, but to fill their bellies. And already Jesus is frustrated by this response. You see, these are his covenant people. These Galileans might not have the same traditions and prestige, or they might not have the same association with Judaism that those in the south did. Nonetheless, nonetheless, they are still inheritors of the twelve tribes of Jacob. They are still inheritors of God's covenant promises to Abraham, to the nation of Israel through Moses, and of course through David. Yet they are infatuated with his wonders and his signs. And Jesus is tired of it. He is tired of it. And when he sees this man come before him, he sees in him one who exemplifies this response. doesn't understand who Jesus is, or the true healing, the true gift that he can give. But he only has thought of this physical need. He only has thought for this world, and how it's temporary and how it will end. You see, Jesus himself is tired because they don't understand this principle. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to have a lifetime lifetime supply of food, to have full and perfect health, to never have need or want, but to lose his soul? Because that is the condition that Jesus came first and foremost to remedy. But all these people do is they want signs. You see, there's a danger here that we should point out. There's a danger. Jesus will reveal in this Gospel that signs do bring faith. It does happen. However, more likely than not, the usual response to signs and wonders, the usual response to miracles, is only shallow and temporary. It doesn't actually engender true faith. It is the unusual way by which people come into the fold of Christ. Signs and wonders, miracles, all they are meant to do is to testify to God's Word, but it is God's Word It is what he has revealed in Scripture. It is what at this time Jesus is saying that is trustworthy. It is not the signs or the wonders. It is the fact that Jesus, time and again, points to himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, not Old Testament miracles. It is Jesus' word that is life-changing. And we still have this problem today. How many of us know people that have said, if I could just see Jesus, if he would just appear to me now, then I would believe. For how many people have we known that would say, if Jesus would just heal my sick child, or if Jesus would just perform this miracle and save me from financial desperation, or if Jesus would somehow intervene in my life, miraculously, then I would give up everything and I would follow him. I would believe. And there's a temptation in that. That if we, if the church, had access to miracles, then somehow it would heighten our efficacy and if gospel evangelism. Somehow more people would come into our fold. More people would join the church of Christ. And what Jesus is saying is that that is not true. It is not true that more signs, wonders. If miracles were happening abundantly today, that more people would come to him in faith. As a matter of fact, he will say later in his ministry, not recorded by John, but for instance, recorded by Matthew, that there will be many who will arise and work signs and wonders and lead people astray. No, it is not the miracles, it is not the wonders that first and foremost testify to who Christ is. It is his word that, that we must believe. It is His Word that we must turn to. It is His Word that we must preach and use in our evangelism. It is His Word that is reliable. And this is why Jesus is tired. Because despite the fact that He is preaching to them and teaching to them, and He is pointing them to God's Old Testament Scriptures, He is asking God's covenant people to look at their covenant document, to look at the Bible, and to read there. And to believe, not just in Jesus, but to believe Him, to believe God. They don't want to do it. I'll never forget, I had a neighbor when we lived uh, in Florida years back. He was a pleasant individual, but he was a sharp individual as well. And by sharp, I mean he was willing to speak very bluntly and boldly about his disinterest in the Christian faith. He himself had actually been training to be a Jewish rabbi, and his wife had been in training to be a Roman Catholic nun. And at some point in their lives, they had got together, and they had abandoned their faith. They wanted nothing to do, either with Judaism or with Christianity. And I asked this man, I said to him, why did you abandon your faith? Why did your wife step away? What was it about your sacred scriptures or your traditions that you turned aside, that they no longer appealed to you, that they no longer set your path forward in study and dedication to them. And he said, I just, I didn't have proof. I didn't have proof that what my scriptures were saying were real. My wife said the same thing. She couldn't, she just didn't have proof. She couldn't believe that Jesus was who scripture says she was. And I said, so what type of proof would you need? What type of proof? What type of sign or miracle would you need in order to believe? And he said, if Jesus appeared to me right now, I would believe. I would repent of my sins. I would become a Christian. My wife would do the same thing if Jesus would just appear in front of me. And I looked at him, and I very seriously said, no, you wouldn't. And he was taken aback. He goes, no, what do you mean? Yes, I would. He'd be right in front of me. Of course I would believe him. I said, no, (laughs) you wouldn't. If Jesus was right here standing in front of you, and you could put your hands in the holes in his, and you could touch the scar in his side, you still would not believe. He said, why not? I said, because you have all the testimony that you need in God's word. It was the same in Jesus' parable with the rich man and Lazarus. When in hell, looking up at Lazarus and, the rich, and Abraham, the rich man says to him, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family so that they might see a man who formerly sat beneath my table. They might see him alive. They might testify that he might testify to them, and they might then believe, that they might turn from their sin, seeing this miraculous resurrection from the dead, seeing a man who was formerly abject, in pain, in suffering, now at peace and whole and in plenty, they would believe, and they would turn away from their sin. What did Abraham respond to him? He said, no, they won't. They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have God's word. Even if a man were to rise again from the dead, they would not believe. You see here? You see what scripture time and again gets at? God's testimony. If we believe Jesus, if we believe his word, that is more than enough for faith that is true and effective till the end. And in a real way, that's similar to now. In this time of the coronavirus, in this time when there's suffering and there's sorrow, there's delay and obstruction, there's worry and there's panic, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe God's word? Do we believe God? Not just in Him. But do we believe His promise that He is working all these things for good for those who love Him? Now, this man believes. You'll notice what he says to Jesus. You notice a pathos there. He says, Jesus, save my little boy. And Jesus in empathy does it. But notice how Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't go with him. Jesus doesn't join him on his journey back to Capernaum. Instead, he speaks his word. And he requires that this royal official believe it. Isn't that amazing? Jesus doesn't summon the son here and save him. He doesn't transport himself with this man to his house. He doesn't even make the long journey, 15 miles to this man's house. Instead, he says, you go home and your son as well. He calls upon this man not to believe in him because of sign and wonder, but to believe his word. see, Jesus is calling all of the Galileans around him to believe his word, and the man believes. Notice, he's no longer the royal official. He is the man. This change in word, it might be nothing, but I have to think there's something more here. He's no longer the royal official. He doesn't come to Jesus in prosperity. He doesn't come to Jesus in status or in title. But instead, he comes to Him like every other individual on this earth, as a man or a woman in need. And he believes that word that Jesus spoke. He has faith, and he sets off on his way. This is a similar belief that Mary, Jesus' mother, had in Cana, previously in the gospel, when spoken to by Jesus, she believes. And this man does so as well. He believes in faith. And while he is still on his way home, his servants meet him with the news that his son was recovering. And so he asks them, this word can mean something on the lines he was curious. It's not as if he still doesn't know. He has faith now. But he asked them, it's almost just a confirmation, when was my son healed? When did he begin to recover? And the servants reveal that it was at the seventh hour, 1 p.m. probably in the day. And this man knows with certainty that was the very time that Jesus had said, your son is going to recover. And notice, he and all of his household believe. signs and wonders, they can lead to faith. But for this man, it was Jesus' word. It was Jesus' testimony. And that testimony had to accompany his return to his household. They would not have thought anything of it. They would just think, wow, this is amazing! This son has recovered. They might have tried to rationalize it or seek for a natural explanation or think nothing beyond the fact that he was sick now and now he's better. But when this man testified to Jesus, they believe. They believe his word. Now I ask you, and I'll end on this, what is the greater gift at the end of this story? What is the greater gift? Our temptation is to think, having seen the pathos of this man, going before Jesus, begging him on his hands and knees, saying, save my boy. Which of us wouldn't do that to save our child? Seeing that, and going home to his son, who he had left. Can you imagine how hard that would have been for this man to leave his ailing child, to have the thought that I might never be able to hold my boy's living hand again? I might never to be able to see my child move his head, breathe a breath, feel the beat of his heart. Can you imagine how much that must have hurt this man? And so it's natural to think that the greater gift here is when this man is reunited with his son, who might very well run out of that household and jump into his father's arms, that that would be the greater gift. But let me encourage you, Friends, that is not the greater gift in this story. That is not, first and foremost, the best gift that Jesus gives here to this man. You see, he gives him faith. When Job, who had lost everything, at the hands of a bargain between Satan and God, had lost all of his property, had lost all of his possessions, had lost his children to death, and had even, as far as we can tell, lost his wife. What is the greater gift in Job's story at the end of this? Is it the fact that God blessed Job with more possessions, with more property, with more children and riches? Is that the gift that we're to take away from this book? Or is the fact that Job maintained his faith? That in the face of God's almighty word, he humbled himself and believed? Which is the greater gift? Many of you know that my wife is sick. And we pray for healing. Day after day, we ask that God might take her sickness and her sorrow away. But I wonder, if she were to be healed tomorrow, which I pray she is, or in a month, or in two months, and believe me, I pray, we are all in some ways in this condition, we all have those who are hurting and are suffering. I wonder, what would be the greater gift? Would it be her healing? Would it be that she has full movement and control of her body? That she can wake each morning not in pain? Or would it be the gift that despite all of this suffering, all of this pain, all of this travail, for year upon year, she has clung to her faith? that Jesus has kept her in his hand. He has not allowed her to despair. He has not allowed her to turn away. He has not allowed her to abandon her faith. But he has held her close. Brothers and sisters, that is the gift. May we rejoice for it. Jesus gives it to us and will not allow it to slip away let's close in prayer this has been a message from Justin Estrada Senior Pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church the congregation of the PCA located in the heart of Kingsville, Maryland and you can find us on the web at www.redeemerkingsville.com